Hello and welcome to The Walk, a podcast where we discuss parenting and what the Bible says about it. God's Word contains truth, encouragement, and application which we want to share with you. The mom or dad journeying through the chaos of raising kids. From the newborn to the rebellious teenager, our mission is to provide you with hope and skills that allows you to be the parent God calls you to be. I am your host, Tony Smith, and we are entering into this episode titled The Absence of Family, Part 1. The focus for this week is on the rejection or abandonment from family, where you are left utterly alone with no support system, where people are kicked out of their homes, basically. They are forsaken by their family. And I hate to do this, but I will be entering into a slight political discussion with Proposition 3 in Michigan approaching simply because it fits nicely with this topic. And then lastly, I'm going to wrap this episode up with some food for thought on how to navigate these issues as a parent. Even if you find that your family is united and stable, not all families are like that. Not all Bible-believing families are like that. So that will be our focus for this week. So let's jump in. Here is our Bible verse for this episode. Psalm 27, verse 10, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Forsaken is a powerful word that means abandoned or deserted. So imagine being a young child abandoned by your family, deserted by your family, left alone to fend for yourself, not knowing what to do or where to go, but simply try to survive. It brings an immense amount of emotion thinking about that happening to my kids. Left alone to try and take care of each other, it would be such a scary time for them. Thinking about it actually makes me nauseous, like I'm sick to my stomach. And the amount of fear my daughters would feel, I can't really fathom. If you grew up without a mom or dad, you can easily identify with this verse. Or if you grew up in an abusive home, you can identify with this verse. Parents are the primary source of protection and safety for their children. When that's taken away in any which way, physically, emotionally, it's detrimental. And you can easily identify with what King David is saying here. As you dive deeper here, this verse doesn't necessarily apply just to the extremes, because living in a single parent home is very common nowadays. But what if you lived in a home with both parents, but their love was conditional, based on achievements or behavior? Well... Is that really love at all? Wouldn't you be forsaken if you didn't live up to expectations? And what about on a spiritual level? Sure, your parents would go to church every Sunday, but are they in a relationship with God through Christ? Do they treat each other with dignity and respect as Christ does? Do they treat you like Christ would treat you? So as David writes this, what was his experience with his parents? Well, looking through 1 Samuel chapter 16, we get a glimpse. The Lord looks at people by their heart. Not like how humans look at people based on appearance. What did David's father think of David? Well, he didn't think much of him, actually, because he wasn't big. He wasn't strong like his brothers. 
He was out tending the sheep when Samuel came to Bethlehem looking for Israel's new king. How did David's father respond? Samuel went through all of Jesse's sons, and Jesse pretty much forgot about David. At the very least, he didn't acknowledge his existence until prompted by Samuel. Jesse's like, oh yeah, the youngest son is out shepherding, but he isn't worth much of anything. You know, I summarized there, but even still, like, wow, thanks, Dad. Sure, Jesse was always in the house. He was physically present, but he didn't really do anything to encourage his son, David. And it says that David had a heart after God. Jesse probably didn't see that as a strength, but maybe he even saw that as a weakness. Parents are supposed to protect you and nurture you physically, but does it stop there? If they don't teach you God's truth, God's principles from his word about who God is, well, I think it's safe to say that they've abandoned you spiritually. And this is such a touchy subject because experiences like this happen so often. I don't know what happened within the last 20 years or so, but it seems as though the trend for family worship, which is just worshiping God within the home as a family unit, whether through music, family devotions by getting into God's word together, praying together as a family, ministering to others as a family, all of these things seem to have decreased and sending kids to private Christian schools, youth group and events, children's programs like Awana have increased. Now, don't misunderstand, all of these things are good and great and should be utilized. But they should be a supplement, not a replacement. And I go over this detail back in the family worship series, but it seems that walking with God as a family is diminishing. And we're seeing an incredibly high rate of young adults leaving or forsaking their relationship with God. Why is that? Because it's not real to them. Going through the motions only lasts so long before the facade is up. I mean, look at marriages, look at relationships, dating relationships. If you go through the motions just to impress somebody, it's not going to last. It's fake. That's exactly what happened with Laura and I when we first started dating. I would go through the motions of, yeah, I'll go to church just to impress the girl. And then my thought process, honestly, was Eventually, as we got closer and closer in our relationship, that I would pull her away from this whole church thing. Well, that didn't, that didn't work out. No, the, the truth is that she called my bluff. She figured it out, and then she broke up with me. And then it's like, whoa, I really like this girl. I really cared for this girl. And now... This, who, who is this God that would, you know, take her away from me? Like, I started to wrestle and figure out who God was as an individual. And ultimately, God brought us back together, and now our relationship is wonderful. But that's, that's kind of the point. This, this fake facade going through the motions doesn't last. And as a mom or as a dad, it's a God-given right and responsibility to raise up your children our children, and the Lord. As a nation, we're missing that. And again, I'm not saying your kids shouldn't be involved in church activities like youth group and Awana. The danger is using them as a replacement for spiritual growth rather than a supplement. Authentic, genuine relationship with God as an adult, visibly lived out and passed down to your children, is where their relationship will take root and be authentic to them.
And this is not a guarantee by any means. God's the one who softens the hearts of men. But there has to be a connection with the amount of people leaving the Christian faith right around college age. About 66% of American people between ages 18 and 22, that's college students, no longer go to church consistently. 66%. And it appears that something happens when kids graduate high school and hit the age limit of legal adulthood that causes them to not go to church and do other things. Perhaps they see Christianity as shallow, not real, fake, or filled with hypocrisy based on interactions with other Christians, including their parents. And the temptations of the world are great. Don't be deceived by this. The attraction of partying, alcohol, drugs, sex, when you finally can be free from your parents' restrictions, like these temptations are a very real thing. And to dismiss that reality that your kid would do this is ignorant. To think that your kid wouldn't desire those things or pursue those things simply based off of how you raised them and your own faith in God is incredible. It's incredibly dangerous. To be filled with so much arrogance to think that your kids are immune to the impacts of society and culture is a problem. But I'm afraid Bible-believing Americans fall into this category often. You know, we think, oh, my kid would never say that. My kid would never do something like that. Just because you're a Christian does not make you immune to sin. Sin is within every one of us. Yes, the closer we draw to God, the more intimate we get with God. His Spirit produces fruit within us, like love and kindness and joy and patience and self-control. But that does not make us perfect. We will stumble at some point, and so will your kids. So the goal as mom and dad isn't just to share Jesus with your kids, but to foster that relationship, meeting their needs as they grow and mature, and showing them a real, authentic walk with the Lord. How do you do that? You have to be real with them. It's okay to talk about your sin struggles with your kids. Age-appropriate, of course. And it's okay to practice confessing sin to the Lord together. Sharing Jesus with friends or neighbors together. Going to take muffins or cookies to people around your your neighborhood and strike up a conversation. Serve together at church, maybe in the nursery or the toddler room, where you're teaching your kids about Jesus and your son or daughter is there alongside you. And this doesn't end when your kid turns 18. Engage with them when they go to college. Encourage them. Lift them up if if they start a new job. Walk with them because that journey is so weird and challenging. They try to figure themselves out and pursue what they want to do for their careers and life becomes a little more real to them. And as your kids age, the form of discipling begins to shift as well. You might be able to sing songs with your younger kids, but maybe as they grow older, they learn to play an instrument. And you can worship together with them playing that instrument. Family worship becomes more complex, but in a good way. It can become more diverse, more elaborate, more mature. And there's such joy in that. Just because your kids are adults and are at the age of 18, that doesn't mean you simply drop them off at a dorm and say, good luck. You don't forsake your kids once they become an adult. You'll always be their mom. You'll always be their dad. 
But having the mindset or the attitude of sending your kids off to college or the workforce, never to see them again or expect them to be just fine without any support, well, when they hit a rough patch, what support will they look for? Will they confide in friends or family? Will they look to God's word? Will they turn to people of bad influence? Don't do all of the groundwork between the ages of 0 and 18 and then forsake them once they become adults. Stick with them through those trying years of early adulthood. Will it bring heartache and tears and stress? Of course it does. But that's the journey of parenting. No matter what stage or circumstance, you experience mountains and valleys. Looking at just our local community, there are a lot of kids left forsaken by their parents. They're living with friends or grandparents, getting caught up into drugs or in gangs, and these kids are in their early teens, left to fend for themselves. It's not something made up. It's real, and I interact with these kids on a daily basis. Honestly, it's kind of a miracle many of these kids show up to school consistently anyways, but at the same time, school is probably the only place where they feel like they belong, a place where they feel safe, safe from their home environment. And you know what? It's no wonder our government writes such extreme legislature. I don't want to get into this political realm too much, but I do want to touch on a topic that is going on in Michigan's proposal or Proposition 3. It's labeled as a right to reproductive freedom. And I won't go into all of the nitty-gritty details about each piece, but I will attach a link in the show notes if you're interested in reading it. But I'm going to read the summarized portion of Proposal 22-3. It says, A proposal to amend the state constitution to establish new individual right to reproductive freedom, including right to make all decisions about pregnancy and abortion, allow state to regulate abortion in some cases, and forbid prosecution of individuals exercising established right. That's the summarized statement. Now, all of the politics in regards to pro-life and pro-choice, or being the voice of the unborn children, or defending the rights of the unborn, or defending the safety of the mom, that's not what I'm going into here. So you can just get rid of that thought from your mind right now. That's not what I'm getting into. That isn't the focus for the episode and this topic. This topic is focused on the absence of family. Why I bring this proposal up is about the parent-child relationship existing in the present. The wording of this amendment mentions the word individual. There would be an established new individual right to reproductive freedom. Now, if we aren't careful, we can automatically jump to conclusions. And I hate jumping to conclusions because there's so much depth and meaning behind law, especially something like this. So my concern started with parental rights. Would my right as a parent be taken away? That was the question I wanted to answer. That was the question I wanted to answer because there is so much buzz going around. You know, this worst case scenario that revolves around how kids can get sterilized or have a sex change or have an abortion without the parents even knowing about it and can get all of the information and support from other people and it can be simple and straightforward and teenagers can own themselves without having to deal with their so-called overly strict parents' rules and this allows kids to have the freedom they want and have been craving for. 
Well, the encouraging thing is that if this proposal does pass, parents will not lose their rights like the worst-case scenario situation I just mentioned. I did some digging, and the Parental Rights Restoration Act of 1990 is in Michigan's legislature, states two things to take note of. And I'm summarizing here, but I'd encourage you to take a look at this. I'll throw a link in the show notes of the episode, but Act 211 of 1990 states, In the realm of reproductive health, a person shall not perform an abortion on a minor without written consent of them and at least one of the parents and or guardian of the minor. And secondly, if the parents or guardians refuse or the minor elects not to seek parental consent, the minor may petition the probate court pursuant to Section 4 for a waiver of the parental consent requirement of this section. Lots of big fancy words there. And what I'm focusing on is the minor's ability to do what they want. So only if minors can prove that informing their parents would endanger their own life, safety, and health. That's what the amendment from 1990 is saying. So this law that was placed back then, Proposal 3 doesn't necessarily take away those parents' rights. However, it does change the impact it could have in courts. So I want to summarize what I found And something I don't like about this proposal is the fact that it puts into question the authority of the parent. It doesn't necessarily take the rights away, but it's a first step in that direction, and I don't like it. The thought of one of my daughters undermining me and being swayed to do anything behind my back, which, yeah, that's a typical teenager thing to do, but to have the support of the government behind them and not me, but also through a a legal process and a medical procedure as extreme and intense as this, that's scary. Like, that's terrifying. But that really isn't the reason why I brought this up. I'm not here to talk about the proposal itself. Actually, my focal point revolves around why the government feels it's necessary to do something like this. And we can take it a step further. Why children, specifically teens, feel the need to find government help usurping their parents' authority. Why do kids feel like that? Because they're most likely in an environment where their family is neglectful or abusive, or quite simply put, absent. The answer to this problem isn't getting government support for an abortion or sterilization or anything for each individual, including minors, behind their parents' back. The answer is to provide a wake-up call to parents who aren't there for their kids on a consistent basis and get them to finally start being there for their kiddos. So here's my final point. How do we navigate some of the issues of abandonment and rejection? How do we, as parents, fight for our own freedoms but also support our children? Really what it comes down to is What does loving your kids and being there for them look like in daily life? Just because you're physically present doesn't mean that they don't feel forsaken by you. Don't just show up to their sporting events. Teach them how to harness skills in the off-season if they're passionate about it. Not necessarily like a coach, but as a mentor, a father. Don't just go to their band and choir concerts. 
Teach them how to play an instrument or sit and listen to them play as they practice or sing and play together. Don't just expect them to have their own quiet time with the Lord in the mornings. Have family worship. Enjoy time in the Word together as parent and child. It's going the extra mile to be involved in the lives, physical and spiritual lives of your kids. And it requires intentionality and a lot of effort because our go-to is simply to do our own thing when we get home from work. Be on our phone, turn on the TV, go for a run. Those things are fine, but you have to walk the walk, not just talk the talk when it comes to your faith because your kids see it and they pick up on those things easily. But what if we were forsaken or abandoned? How do we get through life with that? You first have to trust in God and that he is with you and will never forsake you. Here's a a little bit of a real life with the Smiths. One of the things that I tell my girls from time to time, I sit them down, I look them in the eye, and I tell them that they are a treasure to me. And their eyes light up and their smile gets all big and they get super giddy and excited. And often they want to give me a hug or a kiss after I say that. But that's how God looks at us. He doesn't see us as someone who's abandoned or rejected. He looks at us as his his treasure. Because through Christ, that's what we are. And the pain you feel from being forsaken by people you care about and love... God feels that too. Jesus had 12 disciples, 12 men he called friends. And what happened when he was arrested? They all left. Judas, one of the 12, was the guy who betrayed Jesus. But the rest of them, gone. As Jesus was being crucified, he cries out to God. You all know the words. He says, my God My God, why have you forsaken me? To say that God can't sympathize with our rejection or abandonment is not true. To say that Jesus can't sympathize with our rejection or abandonment is not true. He can relate to the deepest, most painful rejection that exists. The rejection of God the Father. So I encourage you to trust in the Lord's promises and that you pursue him deeply each day and hold fast to the truth that you are never alone and that you will never be forsaken. That's all for today. Items, links, and show notes can be found in the description of wherever you listen to podcasts. We want to say thank you to Pixabay Music and all of you that are listening to our show. We appreciate all of your support, and thanks again. This is The Walk.